Please be seated. And good morning, church. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. And you're right, I am wearing glasses this morning, and uh, not just readers, and I'm very grateful for them. We've been, like every other part of my life, my eyes are high maintenance, and they have finally figured out a prescription that'll help me, and I can, I told them I needed to see 113 feet. I can see the balcony. I can see each one of you individually in the balcony. Yes, thanks for waving. I thought before... I thought before you were all wearing Yeti suits, but they're individual people up there, and very glad to see you. I suspected that you're all acting up back there, but you're actually nice-looking people, and I'm uh, glad to be able to see you. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 to verse 9 of chapter 4, and we're in this, this long conversation with, between God and Moses as God is telling Moses to do something not only impossible, but something that's surely going to get him killed, he must think. I, God has told Moses to go back to Egypt, the place he's been driven out of that he's had to escape from, where there's surely still wanted posters for him, and he's told him, you are going to go there to the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. And Moses has a few questions as we would as well, and as we do, as God calls us constantly to do impossible things. And God engages in this conversation mercifully. He demonstrates himself to be that servant that Jared was talking about, not just one who would reveal himself as a servant in Jesus Christ, but God, the God of creation and providence, reveals himself to be a servant to us as he answers our questions about why should I trust you? Why should I do what you tell me to do? How in the world am I going to do that? What confidence can I have? In believing you, how can I possibly believe you, even in the hour of death? Here, God answers his question as we've seen him answer Moses' questions already with himself. I want you to see it afresh and prepare to be surprised for how you regularly can be convinced that God is faithful to his promises. We'll take up the, the reading in verse 13, though we'll look at other verses. Chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, 
I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I'll strike Egypt with all the wonders that I can do, that I will do to it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing and you'll put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they won't believe me. Or listen to my voice, they'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand in, and catch it. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put, his, put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord put it, uh, it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we say to you with some embarrassment, with a great deal of embarrassment actually, that we are prone not to believe you. Though you speak to us, though you write down your word to us, though you confirm it to us, we have some faith, but we, it is little faith. We thank you this morning that you are a God of people with little faith. And that you stoop down to us and accommodate our unbelief, to accommodate our doubts and our propensity to, to disbelieve and question you, your goodness, when we face the effects of the fall as we have this week. 
We pray that you'd pour out your spirit in a mighty way on each one of us today. In some, you must produce faith for the very first time to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And for the rest, you will have to give us renewed and refreshed faith. But do it, we pray, because we do desire to respond more lovingly and gratefully and courageously to your gracious word. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. Shortly after the World War II, the Allied troops were making their way through, through Europe, and of course there were many orphaned children, and they were gathering up those children ever so mercifully and, and, and putting them into shelters. And in those shelters, they would provide thousands of children gathered in these shelters, and they would provide a, a, a warm bed and clean sheets and linens and uh, security and a roof over their head and, and food, lots and lots of food, three meals a day. But no matter how much they provided, no matter the security and the supplies they provided for these children, they noticed that they had trouble going to sleep at night. And even if they did go to sleep, they slept fitfully and were they were not well rested. An army psychologist studied the situation and figured out what was wrong and, 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 and then proposed a solution. Before each child would go to bed at night, they would put into his or her hand a slice of bread. And they could eat it or they could just hold it. Most of them just held it. If they ate it, they would give them another piece. They would give them as much as they wanted. But they noticed when they started putting a slice of bread in the hand of an orphan child every night, that child could sleep. Now, what was going on? What's the phenomenon? What was wrong with those kids after all? They were given a word. They were told by authorities, you will be fed. They had proven to them in the past that they would feed them. They, that word was, was backed up by nothing less than all of the resources of the United States government. What was wrong with those kids? Why couldn't they just believe? That's not what they did. They mercifully accommodated their propensity to unbelief and their need for some kind of tactile, objective, regular confirmation of the word that they were given. And it is exactly the way our Father stoops down, accommodates Himself, and ministers to us. He gives us the word. He's spoken it with His own lips. He's written it down in Scripture. Martyrs have confirmed it with their own blood. And he's always fulfilled his word. He's never left us destitute. He's never failed to keep one of his promises. What is wrong with us? Why don't we just believe it? It's backed up by all of the resources of heaven. And yet God, and yet God not only gives us his word and his promises and backs them up with his attributes, but he repeats those promises. And he not only repeats those promises, but he confirms them to us humanly and objectively and tactily 
especially in corporate worship. I'm not saying that this text was written entirely to teach us about corporate worship, but I am saying that corporate worship is the primary way that God fulfills this beautiful promise, this beautiful way he deals with us, which is illustrated in his interaction with Moses. To Moses, he doesn't ever say, Moses, I have spoken once, that should be enough. He doesn't merely say, Moses, I've spoken twice, three times, six times, that should be enough. But he says, Moses, here's what I've said. Here's what I've already fulfilled. And Moses, I'm going to touch you in a human, physical, objective way to confirm to you my word. I want to show you, to how you, uh, show you how it unfolds in the passage beginning in verses 15 to 20. This, this idea that God not only gives us his promise, but he fulfills it by touching us in an objective corporate way, especially in worship. Verse, verses 15, and 20, 15 to 20, God makes promises. God makes promises. And these are not new promises. The, the, the whole section could be, could be, could be uh, summarized this way. The, the big promise is I will be faithful. I'll be faithful. I will keep my promise. I promise and I promise I will keep my, fa- my faithfulness to you. And he does it, first of all, by he makes this promise, he, he reaffirms to us that he is faithful by saying, by repeating what he's already told us. He, he repeats to Moses what he's already told him. I am the God of Abraham, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Moses, remember, I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I fulfilled those promises. And now I am making promises to you and I want you to remember that just as I was faithful in the past, I'll be faithful in the future. God never says, just take my word for it. God says, I'm going to give you my word again. Now, technically, in Old Testament studies, we call this a command fulfillment style. A command fulfillment style. And, and, and you, you see it throughout the Old Testament. You, you see it in the New Testament. That God not only gives commands but promises, and they mean both by that. By, uh, whether God speaks a command or a promise, when he fulfills what he said would happen if you keep his command or what he said would happen relative to his promise, when it happens, God comes back and says effectively, I told you so. And let me repeat exactly the words that I said when I told you the first time. Now, while it doesn't go over well as a parent, I can tell you from recent experience, but it does go over well when God says it to us because God constantly amazes us because we forget what he told us and he fulfills the promise and he, or he fulfills the command and he comes back and he says, I told you this is the way it would happen. Seek first my kingdom and all of these things will be added unto you. How many times have you gone to that passage when you're worried, when you're anxious, and you say, okay, 
I, he tells me not to worry. Seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to you. And whatever those things were, they're added to you. Food, shelter, clothing, they're always added. They always come. And what does God want you to do? He wants you to go back and read the same thing. This is exactly what I said. If you seek first my kingdom, these things will be added unto you. Not that God is rubbing it in, because, but, but rather he is building your muscles of faith. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to remind you of what I told you to do so that next time you'll, you'll more readily believe me. So what is it that he specifically says that he is going to do? Uh, in, these, in, in the future, in verse 18, he says that he is, going to, he is going to cause unbelievers to believe. They will listen to your voice. The, the Egyptians, well, we'll get to that in a moment, but he's here immediately speaking of the Israelites. Because if it is hard for Moses to believe that God is going to set his people free, you can only imagine how hard it is for these Israelites to believe it because they're still on the inside. Moses is on the outside. Moses grew up in the, in the king's palace. He's coming to tell the Israelites that they will be set free. They will listen to your voice. And not only will they listen to your voice, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, you're, you may be wondering, what in the world are they doing when they say to Pharaoh, let us go on a three-day journey? Are they lying? Were they ultimately, were they, were they trying to, to deceive him so that they could get out? But this, this phrase, a three-day's journey, was a common one in the, in the Middle East, which described a very, very long journey. It's not that they're, it's not that they're asking Pharaoh for a long weekend. They're saying, we're going, here's what they're saying exactly, we're going on a very, very long journey. In fact, it's a permanent one away from you. And we're going on a journey with this mission. We're going to make sacrifices to the Lord, our God. In other words, Pharaoh, we're not only leaving your kingdom, but we're leaving you. Because you have said that you are God. And that the reason you reign over us is because you are stronger than our God. And we're leaving you to make sacrifices to the Lord, the God of Israel. There's no doubt in his mind what they were saying. We see it from his anger. But God is saying, I have the ability. I have the ability to make unbelievers believe even if they're in the church, and to make them to believe so much that they can with courage go with you, Moses. I'm going to transform you into a cow, from a coward into a courageous hero, and along with you, elders are going to go with you, and you're all going to say the same thing. We're leaving you, and we're going to follow the Lord our God. That's one promise. It's a promise He makes to you too. You will believe. God will see to it. And then I want you to see in verses 21 to 22 that he not only causes unbelievers to believe, but he, he causes enemies to become friends. We could also say that he shames 
enemies. He causes enemies to become friends or to shame them. Maybe that's what the point should be. Verses 21 and 22, where, where he promised, where, where he says, you're going to leave and you're going to leave with the favor of the Egyptians. Oh my goodness, what are you saying now, Lord? This is crazy enough that you're telling us that we're going to leave. Now you're going to tell us that we're going to leave with the blessing of our neighbors. Yes, not only that, they're going to empty their pockets. Each one, each woman, each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters so you'll plunder the Egyptians. Don't miss what is being said, what is being said here. Don't miss all of it. God says, I am so powerful and will deliver in such an obvious way. I'm not only going to enable you to believe it with courage, but I'm going to cause your neighbors to support you. And eventually, he says in other places like Psalm 87, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring people to myself from Egypt. They're going, to be, they're going to be fellow believers. And then I'm going to, and, and not only am I going to do this in such a way that it humiliates that it shows Pharaoh that he doesn't have any power. I'm going to do it in such a way that it humiliates him. I'm going to lead you out of Egypt and provide for you in the desert by your women going to their neighbors, asking kindly for gold and silver and clothing, and they're going to get it, and they're going to be, they're going to supply for all the needs of the Israelites. I'm going to cause your women to plunder Pharaoh. Now you think about what God is saying to this Egyptian despot. I am so powerful and so gracious that I am going to defeat you, Pharaoh, by the people you despise the most and look down on the most. First of all, you are, you've looked down on children so much that you have been willing to slaughter them. Well, guess what? I've caused one of those little boys that you thought you had killed to float down into your lagoon and to grow up in your palace, and he is the very one who is coming to lead my people out. And secondly, those women whom you've been using and abusing as machines to have more slaves... I'm going to cause them without violence to go to their neighbors and ask for their jewelry and their clothing, and they are going to, they are going to be the plunderers of your kingdom. Not military men, women whom I love. That's the promise. Another promise. It's in verses 19 and 20. Not only am I going to cause unbelievers to believe, and I'm going to unbelieving among God's people to believe and not only am I going to am I going to make friends out of enemies I'm going to reveal that evil is evil I'm going to bring judgment on evil verses 19 to 20 I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that as Christians, the coming judgment day is not something that we fear. 
We are hidden in Christ. His righteousness has become ours. We will be viewed only through Christ. So judgment is not something we fear. Judgment is something we see as a coming friend. And it's the good news that we pass on to our unbelieving friends. You no longer need to fear judgment if you come under the righteousness of Christ. Instead, you can find judgment to be a very welcome answer to your deepest longing for justice in this world, for every wrong to be righted. This is what the theologian N.T. Wright said a few years ago, the word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world, but we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned for. It causes people to shout for joy, the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God A good God must be a God of judgment. You've been waiting for your deliverance, Israel. You're not only going to be delivered, but you're going to be delivered in a way that demonstrates to Pharaoh, to his people, and to all the surrounding nations that your God is a God who takes note of those who are oppressed and abused, and he brings judgment on it. Well, that's the promise. Those are the promises. But can we believe them? Can we believe them? Verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, God not only shows, not only tells us that we must believe, but He shows us how we will believe and how He will confirm to us our belief. And it's what we experience weekly in corporate judgment. I want to show you one more thing about this narrative, something, a stylistic uh, um, device that is, that is used uh, in all uh, religious literature, but it means something. It actually means something to us as believers in Christ. Uh, experts in ancient Greek literature talk about the hieros logos, the hieros logos. Hieros means sacred, logos means word. And so in, in those who study ancient texts pay particular note to those places where the, the deity or the god or the goddess speaks personally. Those places in their literature where they put quotation marks around the speech and they say that is That is of particular significance when a pagan god or goddess speaks personally to someone. Well, we have those examples too. Now, theologically, we believe that every every word in this book called the Bible is God's word. We believe that. But God, in his further accommodation to us, puts quotation marks around some things. And when I first became a Christian, somebody gave me a New Testament that had red words and black words. I didn't know anything about that. I was a new Christian. And they explained to me the red words were the words of Jesus. 
Well, that's what, that's a, those are hieroi logoi. Those are, those are sacred words. And we could have red lettering in the, New Te- in the Old Testament too. Every place where God says, quote, and so forth. Well, we have examples of hieroi logoi in chapter 3, verse 12. I will be with you. We have it in 3.14. I am. Uh, what's in your hand? 4.9. Uh, I will speak. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 14. He will speak. What's God doing when he gives us these direct quotations? He is saying, he has said in other places, every word of Scripture is from me. You can trust every word of Scripture, but I know at times that you will be so faint in your unbelief that you'll need to know, what did I exactly say? And that's what I want you to remember. There were times as a, as a young Christian when I would say, you know, I know that my teachers have told me that the black words are as much of God's Word as the red words, but I, I need some red words right now. I need Jesus to talk to me. I need Jesus to say, I am the way. I am the gate. I am the door. I need Jesus to say, seek first the kingdom of God. I will be with you. And you do too. And I want you to understand that you have not only those red words in the New Testament, you have red words in the Old Testament too. God gives us his direct words. That is one way he accommodates our weaknesses, and he does it particularly in, in worship. He not only gives you his direct words in worship, but when you come to worship, when you come corporately to worship, even those words that are in black that are not directly quotes from God, because they are delivered by people to you, they become even more objective or more comforting. And when you come into corporate worship and your brothers and sisters repeat those words to you, they are even more directly from God because the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of those persons and there's some phenomenon that occurs that that that, that, that promise of Scripture that you've read on your own becomes even more believable when it's given to you by someone in inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And then look at all these other promises. In verses 1 to 5, he says he will bring the dead to life. And how does he confirm that? He does that by the stick and the snake. He says, take the staff in your hand, throw it on the ground, it becomes a stick. put, Put your hand down, pick it up, and it will become a stick again. What's he saying? I bring the dead to life. I've already told you that. I'm going to tell, I told you I will make unbelievers believe. I will revive dead belief. I've already told you that, but you're going to have trouble remembering that. You're going to have trouble believing that. So I'm going to give you this objective sign. And then he says in verses 6 and 7 that he cleanses the unclean or he heals. Put your hand in your cloak. It'll become leprous. Take your hand out. Put it back in. It will be healed. Take it out. It'll show you. I'll show you. It's healed. I'm the one who will cleanse you of your sin, and I'm the one that will heal your body. Verses 8 and 9, he says, and I will destroy all evil. I've told you that I'm going to bring judgment on the wicked. I've told you I'm going to deliver 
you from them. I'm going to make a mockery of, of Pharaoh, but you're going to have trouble remembering that. So I'm going to do things with that stick in your hand that will show you I am the one who brings evil. That stick is going to become the picture of my judgment and my justice. By it, you will touch the water. It will become blood. You will touch it again. It will become, become healing. You'll, you'll lift it up and plagues will come. You will lift it up. The death angel will come. You will lift it up and you will cross over on dry land and you'll lift it up again and the waters will close in in judgment on Pharaoh's army. Francis Schaeffer had a sermon about this, this stick and he called it God so used a stick of wood. And he's not talking about the stick ultimately, he's talking about you and me. There are no little people, no little places, Francis Schaeffer said, because God uses even sticks of wood to bring about his judgment and his justice and life in other people. Now, where, where, where does all of that come to? How do you experience in an objective way that those promises will come true? You experience it in corporate worship. There is something that happens when you gather together with God's people that cannot happen through a TV screen or through a computer monitor or audibly on the radio. Yes, God will use his word. He can use his word to bless in all kinds of ways. But there is something that happens when you gather corporately with the people of God that can't be fully explained and can't be imitated in any other way. You come together in a concentrated dosage of a gathering of the Holy Spirit among you. And he confirms to your consciences that he brings to the dead to life. I can prove it to you. Look around at the teenagers gathered in this room this morning. He brings the dead to life. I know it. I was one of these, but I didn't go to church. Why would God bring teenagers and not just teenagers, children and adults? Why did he bring you to worship and not your neighbor? Why were you awakened this morning and say, I need to go to church? Why were you placed in a home, children or teenager, where a father or mother said, it's time to get up and go to church? Why did he not do that for your neighbor? Why are you so blessed as to come into this place and hear this, these promises of God's Word? It's because God is one who saves and God is one who awakens and God is one who makes us to believe. You see, just showing up in corporate worship is a demonstration of God's life-giving promises. And, and then that He, he makes the... He, he heals... There are some of you here who, who are alive today only because God healed you. We grieve today the loss of Elle Gieselman. But we thought we were going to lose her on Tuesday before Palm Sunday. God raised her up. And we witnessed it on Palm Sunday as she came down this aisle too with a palm branch. And if you weren't here, you didn't see it. And if you aren't here, you can't see week by week by week. 
God fulfills his promise to bring life from the dead and to heal. And his promise is no less true. It's even more true today because God has fulfilled his promise and he has healed her completely. And if you weren't here today, you wouldn't have heard that. You might have heard a recording of it. There's something more real being here, isn't it? And then judgment, justice, salvation, healing. We, we experience that healing in baptism as we feel the water. We will experience it tonight in the Lord's Supper. By, way, by the way, our worship service today is not finished until the benediction this evening. He gives us morning and evening worship. And in the evening, he has this anticipation of confirming to us that judgment will come and we will be delivered from all of our foes because we eat and drink from this table to declare the Lord's death until he comes again. God loves us so much, he doesn't just say, take my word for it, but he touches us in human and tactile ways, something that can't be substituted you can't, you, can't, you can't replace what is here in weekly corporate worship by looking at it through a screen. The other evening, five of us were gathered around our dinner table, but there are six of us in the family, and the sixth one joined us by FaceTime. Well, that's better than nothing, but not much. And eventually, the one joining us by FaceTime say, you're making me too sad, I need to hang up now. Because you're there and I'm not. There are ways to join and keep in touch with this church other than corporate worship. It's better than nothing but not much. God has given you these real ways of assuring you he will fulfill his promise. A long time ago, there was a young woman in my church who, I'm not sure what happened, but she had a very tragic relationship with her father. She was mistreated by him and by other men as well in her life. And she said to me, she was a dear friend of our family, and she said to me on one occasion, she said, you know, George, I really want to believe that God loves me. I really want to believe that God is a father, but I can't do it. I just can't, I just can't do it. I know it's true, but I, I, can't, I can't viscerally believe it. Well, I, I, was a, I was a new pastor at the time, and so I tried the old thing with, you know, you've just got to rely on the facts and not your feelings. And then I then, then I learned more that God does want to confirm to us in an emotional way what is objectively believed. And he gives us a promise of that, that the Spirit is the one who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's an emotional promise. And I said, Larissa, this is pretty new to me, but I, but I think we need to pray for God to seal to you that, that it really is true that God loves you and that 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 you're his daughter and that he's a perfect father and Jesus is a perfect man in your life. 
And I think that the, the primary place that that's going to occur is as you're praying then in corporate worship. So don't give up. Keep worshiping morning and evening and keep praying that prayer. And about five years later, she came up to me after a morning service and she grabbed my hand and she said, George, it happened. Well, I forgot what she was talking about. What happened? Today I believed. Today I not only know God loves me and has promised to be my father and Jesus my brother, but I believe it. I really believe it. It's the way God loves to work. It's the way he meets with you this morning and wants to keep meeting with you. Who are we that we should have a good redeeming God like this? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we believe, but help our unbelief. Even the preacher, please confirm to us, confirm to me, by your word and sacrament and by the reality of the fellowship of this congregation, that you mean every word you say and you're fulfilling it. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen.